Would you turn out of Daniel chapter 6? If you remember, we have entitled this series, Loving God in a World that Doesn't. And we've looked at different cameos of the life of Daniel in different situations. And today we're going to look at Daniel as a faithful man. In fact, we've entitled this message, Faithful Through and Through. And it says in verse 1, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be over the whole kingdom. And over these three governors, whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account of these so that the king would suffer no loss. Then Daniel distinguished himself above the governors, the satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought of setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. And these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that Whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, He knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since the early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. I am often reminded of the power of making a promise and keeping that promise. My son often reminds me of what I said. They'll say things like, Hey, Dad, when are we going camping? Like you promised. He knows those are the words that will get to me, of course. And when are you going to teach me how to play golf? Like you promised. When are we going to the museum? Like you promised. All reminders of the power of being faithful and the importance of holding integrity. The word faithful simply means to keep your word, to keep the vows that you made. Or it could be defined as a steady allegiance or a loyalty. As some of you know, the motto for the United States Marine Corps for the last 200 years has been always faithful, semper fidelis, always faithful. And yet, the book of Proverbs asks a searching question that all of us need to answer in our own hearts. It says, Most men will proclaim each his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? It's a good question. When you look around at the world and you look at the breakdown of the family, you see fallen sports heroes, you read about shady politicians, even hypocritical spiritual leaders, you ask, who can find a faithful man? Are there any left? 
will they arise once again. Now Daniel was faithful publicly as well as privately. He was a rare breed in that he kept a balance in keeping his commitments to his country, to his boss, and especially to his Lord. It's a rare balance indeed, and that's why Proverbs 20 asks the question, who can find a faithful man? Now perhaps all of you can even right now think of people who've made commitments to Jesus Christ. Lord, I'll follow you. I'll be your disciple. Yet you ask the question, where are they now? Where are they today? They've been sort of disqualified in the race of life. You don't see them running any longer. Daniel was different, and refreshingly so, as we look at these verses this morning. You notice, though, that Babylon is now under new management. We read about Darius, and we read about satraps, a word that perhaps you've never even come across before. What is a satrap? Oh, these are all government positions, high-ranking authority in the Persian government. Look at back at uh, chapter 5, verse 31. It's effectively the end of Babylon, or the Babylonian reign. Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, Darius the Mede was given the kingdom by Cyrus the Persian. He was the big cheese. He's the guy that came in and swarmed around Babylon and overtook it that night that Belshazzar had his feast. He then gave the kingdom to Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede was like the viceroy ruler, which made him king de facto of Babylon. But the central focus this morning is not the history of Babylon or Darius the Mede, but a man of an excellent spirit, as he's described in these verses, a man who was faithful named Daniel. First of all, look at the first couple of verses. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom. And over these, three governors. So these are administrative chiefs, joint chiefs of staff, whom Daniel was one, that the satraps may give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. This morning we want to look at four facets of Daniel's faithfulness. First of all, Daniel was faithful consistently. Daniel chapter 6 is the year 537 B.C. Daniel was born around 625 B.C., which makes him 87 years old in chapter 6. Almost 90. Now you remember when you first met Daniel in chapter 1? It says Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. And from chapter 1, he was a teenager, all the way through his life in Babylon, he made these commitments to be faithful to God, faithful to Nebuchadnezzar, faithful to his nation. And ever from that time, he was faithful, continually being there, used by God, involved in whatever needed to happen, he was around. Now he's pushing 90, and he's still at it. You know, you think when a guy's almost 90, it's time to retire. You'd expect to find Daniel maybe in a retirement home, patting the great-grandkids on the head, telling them the same old stories over and over again, talking about the good old days, what it used to be like way back when I was around, but not Daniel. Eighty-seven years young and an example of steady, consistent faithfulness all the way throughout his life, sort of like the ever-ready bunny. You know, he just keeps going and going and going. And you never get rid of Daniel. In every successive kingdom, he just sort of shows up. 
Now, don't think that age, when you get to a certain age, you're approaching those gray-haired years, and believe me, I'm getting a few already. But don't think that when you reach a certain age, that means it's all over. That means that, well, there's, I can't be used by God any longer. I'll just sit around and do nothing and let everybody else do this stuff. After all, I'm really not wanted anymore. Well, that's just not so. I remember when I was a teenager, and it was very in to distrust age. You don't trust anybody over 30. When you're young, you know, if they're over 30, it's just like they're untrustworthy. But now the tables have turned, haven't they, for a lot of us? It's hard for us to trust anybody under 30. They got to know, he's a little young. Age scares a lot of people. One person said, you can tell you're getting old when all the names in your little black book end in M.D. He went on to say, you can tell you're getting old when you get winded playing chess and you look forward to a dull evening. You can tell you're getting old when your knees buckle and your belt won't. You can tell you're getting old when you're 17 around the neck, 42 around the waist, and 126 around the golf course. You can tell you're getting old when you sink your teeth into a stake and they stay there. You can tell you're getting old when you straighten out the wrinkles in your socks and you find out you're not wearing any. (laughs) You know, I found that age is really an attitude, that years can wrinkle your skin but not your soul. I've met people who definitely reach the twilight years, but they're just ever young. I had lunch with a missionary a few years ago. He was 95 years old. He came to lunch in a suit. It was, his, it was uh, his birthday lunch. We went out to his uh, celebrate his birth, 95 years old, put his nice suit on, tie, sat down at the table. He was eating soup, and of course at that age, things had changed, and all the muscles weren't working quite right, and uh, he would, you know, drool down one side of his cheek with the soup, and um, of course I do that even now. <laughs> he said, the plumbing isn't as good as it used to be. I'm 95 years old today, but my legs don't know it, and I'm going to keep going till the Lord calls me home. Since then, the Lord has called him home, but he was consistent like Daniel to the very end. I think of the people throughout history who decided to keep going instead of lay back as age was creeping up with them. Here's a few examples. William Gladstone, when he was 83, became prime minister for the fourth term in Great Britain. Nothing was slowing him down. Thomas Edison was still inventing when he was 90. Frank Lloyd Wright still kept an office and was considered an innovative architect when he was 90 years old. Then there's J.C. Penney, who was a great Christian businessman who still kept his office hours at 95, much like that missionary that I met with. Then there's Michelangelo. At 89, he painted what was considered his greatest painting of all, The Last Judgment. You can still see it in the Sistine Chapel in Rome. 89 years old. Then John Wesley, the preacher of preachers. 88 years old, still eloquently preaching the gospel. He had ridden 250,000 miles on horseback, preaching thousands of sermons without a P.A., 
just this booming voice, and at 88, he was eloquently speaking after all of that time that he had logged. Then there's Roy Gustafson, I think of. Some of you know him. He's spoken here a couple times at Calvary. He's a little bit over 80 years of age, works for the Billy Graham Association. He has to be helped up the stairs. I called him a few months back. He just had a triple bypass surgery, surgery for phlebitis back at the Mayo Clinic. And I called him up to, you know, soothe him and to comfort him. And he gets on the phone. He goes, I'm going to Africa in a couple weeks. (laughs) You're going where, Roy? Going to Africa to preach. I said, well, Roy, I'll pray for you. He goes, I need that when I cross the street. (laughs) Still going at it at 81 years of age. And how about his associate, Billy Graham? 76. He's preached to 107 million people around the world, more than any other person who's ever lived. And yet this coming year, he plans to do a crusade in Central America that will be broadcast live with interpreters to 130 nations worldwide. Uh, Nothing's slowing him down. He's just going to go for it till God calls him home. A good biblical example is Caleb. I love the story of Caleb. We first come across him in the wilderness when the children of Israel are going from Egypt to the Promised Land. And uh, Moses sends out 12 spies to see what's going on on the other side of the land. The 12 spies go out. Ten of them have a bad report. Two of them have a good report. The two are Joshua and Caleb. The 10 spies say, Man, there's big walls over there. There's giants in the land. We can never overtake it. Joshua and Caleb said, God promised it. Let's go for it. Let's try it. What have we got to lose? We're out here in the desert. Let's do what God wants. Well... The sad thing is the children of Israel listened to the ten witnesses. They wandered for 40 years in the desert. But finally they come into the land and Caleb is there once again. Joshua and Caleb face off. And Caleb approaches Joshua as an 85-year young individual. And listen to what he says. I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so is my strength now for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now, Daniel was like that. He's 87. But he's not one to live in the glories of the past. I remember back in 19-whatever. No, right now is a great time for me to consistently walk with God. So he was faithful throughout his life, faithful consistently. Secondly, we notice that he was faithful professionally. He was on the job, and he worked hard. In fact, he was faithful professionally in two ways. He worked hard, and he had a good attitude. In verses 1 through 3, we read that he was in a cabinet position for Babylon, in the government. And it seems that wherever Daniel went, whatever task he had, he got promoted. He was just that good. He was so good, and whatever he set his hand to, they gave him a raise. And so we read that the king, in verse 3 thought to set him over the whole realm. Uh, Look back uh, in history a little bit. Look back in uh, verse 29 of chapter 5, when Belshazzar of Babylon was in charge. We read, Then Belshazzar, chapter 5, verse 29, gave the command, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain of gold around his neck, 
made a proclamation concerning him that he should be third ruler of the kingdom. Promoted back then. Go back to the beginning of his career, chapter 2. After Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember verse 48, Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. This guy was always promoted because he worked hard. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said that you are the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. Neither does a man light a lamp and then stick it under his bed or under a bushel. He puts it out so that everybody in the house can have light. So let your light shine, Jesus said, among men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. One of the best places to do that is on the job, in a professional setting, by working hard. The place you spend most of your time outside of your family is probably at work. If you're the average American and you work five days a week, 40 hours, if you were to add all that up and you live to be 70 years old, which is the average, sort of, a little bit older than 70, maybe 72, 73, if you add up all the years that you will work, it is added up to 20 years that you will be on the job. 20 years you will work out of the 70 years that you live. That's a long time and great opportunity for people to see your light as you let it shine among men. The family is the shaping place of the Christian. The work is the stage of the Christian life. You see, when you come to work and people find out you're a Christian, a few questions go through their mind. They think, okay, how's this guy different? How do Christians come to work Monday morning? Any different than I come to work Monday morning? Do they have halos on? Do they sort of soar into the building? They find out that's not true, but they check the attitude. Do Christians have a different attitude than I have? Uh, What did Christians do during the weekend? What kind of business ethics do Christians have? Are they any different than mine? They are asking all of these questions. And I think that some of the best years I've ever had in ministry were in the secular workplace, when I just worked in hospitals, worked at gas stations, and I was able to share with people who wouldn't come to church. I remember talking to one fellow, and I was sharing the gospel with him, and he just sort of stopped me midstream. He goes, you're like a preacher, aren't you? He said, you're ever going to go into the ministry? I said, I am in the ministry right now. I'm talking to you. You'd never go hear somebody at a church or go to a concert, but I'm talking to you right now. I am in full-time ministry, and so are you. I want to encourage you that here's an example of a man who was one of the most effective witnesses, not because he was a preacher or an evangelist. He didn't have thousands of people to preach to. He didn't have a pulpit. He didn't have a radio or TV ministry. But He was a businessman. He was faithful by being a hard worker, and King Darius picks up on it and seeks to promote him. He was working hard. That's very important. Some people think, well, now that I'm a Christian and I go to work, let's see, I've got to read my Bible, and I didn't read it this morning before I went to work, so I'll just read it at work. And I'll pass out tracts at work, and I'll take time out of my job to share the gospel with people when I should be working. I worked with a guy like this. He was a young Christian. 
And he decided that now that he was a Christian, he was going to win the world for Christ. Good attitude. Problem? He took a lot of time out of his day to do it. Time that he should be working hard, he took time to sit down and talk to people. And I drew him aside. I said, bro, I was an older Christian. I was maybe three months older in the Lord than he was at the time, giving him fatherly advice. I said, man, you shouldn't be doing this. Well, I'm a Christian. God's called me to preach the gospel. I said, do it on your time, not company time. You want to be a great witness? Be a great worker. That would be an awesome witness. People will take notice of that and go, this guy is different. I want to hire more people like this. A man by the name of Robert Stover has a corporation in San Francisco where he supplies temporary workers to businesses. As a Christian, he says, witnessing should be natural, an integral part of a person's character. And a person's business practices have to match what he preaches or else no one will listen to his message. So Daniel is faithful professionally by being a hard worker, but also by having a good attitude. We notice in verse 3, Daniel distinguished himself. It's Aramaic participle. He was continually distinguishing himself above the governors and the satraps. Notice, because an excellent spirit was in him. Or literally, an extraordinary attitude. He worked hard, but he had a good attitude, and it got the king's attention. Now, would you keep a marker here and turn over to the New Testament book of Ephesians for just a moment? It's sort of a comprehensive manual on the Christian life in the book of Ephesians. And look at chapter 6. We're going to see what Daniel practiced, and we're going to see it as a New Testament principle. Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 5, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord, not to men knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Did you know that the early church had a philosophy, a work ethic, that basically stated was this, whether you're a master or a slave, whatever you do, God has allowed you to be in that place to spread the gospel. And you can effectively spread the gospel by being the best at what you do. Work hard and have a good attitude. And he covers these principles in the verse that we read before us. And notice he says that we're to do it not with eye service. That means not when the boss is watching only. I remember in P.E., Coach Zipkovich would walk by. Big old, huge guy, muscle-bound. And of course, when the coach walked by, I did perfect sit-ups. He looked at me and go, I said, good job. As soon as he was out of there, I just laid down. There's people that work like that. The boss comes down the hall. They quickly pick up a pencil, have that furrowed, intense look like they're mm, thinking this problem through. As soon as he walks out the door, throw the pencil down, grab the magazine again. It's just with eye service. And Paul says that we should also have the right reason that we work hard, and that is you do it to Christ. Notice what the verse says, as to the Lord and not to men. Now, you might be getting paid by the company, but your real boss is God. And God sees when the boss isn't looking. All things are naked and open, the Bible says, before God, the one that we have to do with. 
Now, I wonder if we went to work tomorrow morning with this new perspective, how it would change radically, not only the way we work, but why we do it. We do it as to Christ. We think, hey, this is a ministry opportunity. It could turn the most drudgery kind of a job into a great opportunity. You say, Skip, you don't understand my job. I mean, I've got the most boring job on earth. But notice to whom Paul was writing. Verse 5, it begins not by saying executives, but bondservants or slaves. Most of the people that Paul was writing to were slaves. They were owned by people. I'm sure a slave would have all the rights to say, Paul, I've got a boring job, all right? I'm a slave. And Paul would say, then be the best slave the owner has. Did you know that church history records that Christian slaves got the highest money and and got the highest price at the slave market more than any other kind of slave? Because they had the reputation. These guys work hard for the most part and have a good attitude, even though they are slaves. They saw the transformation. Perspective is everything. If you realize, I'm doing this for Christ, He's my boss, I want to have the right attitude so that people see it, people wonder why I have a good attitude, why I work so hard, then I'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. But the perspective is everything. There was a stranger that went up to three men doing exactly the same job. And the stranger asked each of the workmen, what are you doing? The first man said, I'm breaking rocks. The second man, doing the same thing, said, I'm earning a living. The third man, doing the same thing, said, Man, I'm building a cathedral. All doing the same thing, but all doing it with different motivations and perspectives in mind. But the point is this. Daniel was not a priest. He was not a preacher. He was a businessman. He was a political person. He was in Babylon, away from home, 87 years of age, and he was an effective person because he worked hard and he had the right attitude. And so he was faithful consistently. He was faithful professionally. And look in verse 4. He is faithful under scrutiny. So the governors and the mousetraps, excuse me, the satraps, sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. It doesn't mean that he was sinlessly perfect. It simply means when they put him under the microscope and they sought to find a charge against him professionally, ethically, they couldn't find anything that would sustain a legal charge. And so the wise men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it concerning the law of his God. Now, jealousy is brewing in the hearts of his co-workers. How come? Verse 3 gives you the answer. The king wanted to give Daniel a promotion above the rest of them. Above the rest of them. You know, when anyone is being blessed or promoted, especially if that person's in a prominent position, that person will be dogged by envious people who would love to see that person fall. They would just love it. Why? Because it's not happening to them. It's happening to somebody else. I should be promoted king. How come Daniel is? And so they now conspire to place him under scrutiny. Now, what if his co-workers had a biblical work ethic and they saw somebody else being promoted? And let's say they had a New Testament foundation. 
a New Testament perspective. They would remember what Romans 12, verse 15 says. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. Daniel, you got promoted. Right on, man. Good for you. May the best man win. God bless you. But you know how hard that is, don't you? Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. The second part is easy. The first part's tough. It's easy to weep with those that weep. Somebody has a problem, a misfortune, a death. They got ripped off. And you can bend down and weep with that person. You can love and be compassionate to that person a lot easier than if somebody's promoted. Because if something bad happens to them, hey, it didn't happen to you, you're still better off. But what if you have a need and they get blessed in that area of need? Oh, you've been praying for a husband or a wife for a long time. And your girlfriend comes up and says, we're getting married. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) I just got a new job. Just got a new car. That's great. Hallelujah to you. (laughs) It's hard to rejoice with those that rejoice. The natural human instinct would be to get jealous and to become envious as these men did. But, as verse 4 says, even under close scrutiny, Daniel was found faithful in his private life as well as in his public life. Let me read verse 4 to you in the Jerusalem translation. They could find nothing to discredit him and no case of negligence. He was so punctilious that they could not find a single instance of maladministration or neglect. That's awesome. It sounds, though impossible, as if Daniel had been reading the book of Second Peter. Listen to what Peter writes in the New Testament. Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. They might try to bring an accusation. They might make up stories about you, spread rumors, but it can't be sustained. It's just not so. Again, I think of Dr. Billy Graham. You know how many years they've been after him? All those goofy rag magazines that try to say he's this and that, bring charges against him. They haven't been able to do it. He's been clean. He's been faithful consistently. He's been faithful professionally. He's been faithful under scrutiny. And for the last 27 years, he has been on Gallup polls top 10 most admired men in the world for 26 times of those 27 years. Faithful under scrutiny. Finally, Daniel was faithful spiritually. He was faithful consistently from a young man to an older man. He was faithful professionally. He was faithful under scrutiny. And the rest of these verses show us that he was faithful spiritually. Verse 6. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said... King Darius, live forever. It's protocol to say that. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators, the satraps, the counselors, the advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days, notice, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree, sign the writing, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians that does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. King Darius had a basic flaw that spells death to any leader. He was moved by flattery. King, live forever. Let's have a law that nobody worships any other god except you. In other words, they shouldn't worship anybody except worshiping you because they saw him as deity. Let's bring everybody together. Unify the kingdom. 
allow no other God. It's kind of a, a real statement of uh, togetherness in our faith. You can't worship anybody. Make it a law. Darius thought, you know, I like that. I kind of like that. They'll just worship me. That's good. So he signed it. And it was an indelible kind of a thing. It could never be changed. The Mede and the Persian law had no appeal system. It alters not. He signed it. He was moved by flattery. It's a dangerous thing. Remember Herod? Acts chapter 12. He took everybody in that amphitheater in Caesarea. He sat down. He had really great looking clothes on that day. A silver robe that gleamed in the sun. And he sat down on his throne. And all of the people said, It's the voice of a God and not a man. And Herod thought, hey, nice duds, you know. They, it says that God struck him dead because he failed to give glory to God. They tried to flatter Jesus. He wouldn't fall for it. The Herodians came with the Pharisees and they said, Master, we know that you are the truth and that you speak the words of God in truth. And then they said, tell us, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The text says they were trying to trap Jesus, but they buttered him up. Jesus didn't fall for it. He just said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. And he stopped their mouths with his wisdom. Wouldn't fall to the flattery. Look at verse 10 now. Let's see what Daniel does. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying, making supplication before his God. Now he knew the law was passed. He knew that if he were to pray and people caught him, it could mean his life. In fact, it does mean his life. He gets thrown into a lion's den. He had to make a choice. He was at a crossroads. Now let's think, perhaps, of the other options that may have been bouncing around his brain that day as he knew the law had been signed. Maybe he had thoughts like this. Okay, it's only a month. It's 30 days that I have to follow this. So I won't pray for 30 days. At least I'll live for a long time and I'll have more years to be a witness so I'll just not get spiritual for a month. I'll outwit these guys. Or perhaps he thought, I know what I'll do. I'll go to the king myself. He trusts me. He's going to promote me. I'll tell him who these guys are, why they're doing it, and I'll press charges against them. Or perhaps he thought, okay, I'll pray, but I'll close my windows. I'll take a long walk outside the walls of Babylon, and I'll just pray in my heart. I don't need anybody to see this. Religion is a private thing. He opens his windows facing Jerusalem, and he prays three times a day. The Jews always did that, by the way. They always faced Jerusalem because the temple was once there. And it was always the hope that one day, as we pray, the temple will will be rebuilt and we'll gather around it in Jerusalem. His prayer is answered in Daniel chapter 9. But opening the windows, praying out so people could see him, was he being a little ostentatious? Was he trying to attract attention? Was he trying to rub his righteousness in their noses? You know, come on, I'll show you a prayer if you want it. No, none of the above. He was simply doing what he had always done, and why change it now? That would be hypocrisy. He always opened his windows. Pious Jews always did that. He'll still face Jerusalem. He'll still pray three times a day. He's always done it. He's not going to change now, no matter what decree is signed. So he opens, he prays, and in verse 11, he is caught. 
The point is this. He didn't start being religious all of a sudden when his neck is on the line. It says it was his custom since early days. And he wasn't going to change. Folks, it's better to die for a conviction than to live with a compromise. And he was open about it. The point is this. Daniel's walk with God was not crisis-oriented. He didn't see God as the great emergency room in the sky. God has his beeper. 911 is the answer. Whenever I'm in trouble, I'll call God. He's always on call. But I don't need him at other times. There's a lot of people who have a foxhole relationship with God. The bombs go off. Oh, God! Daniel had always prayed to God. This wasn't any different. He opens his windows and he prays. Do you have a regular, consistent time with God? I submit to you that if you do, that if your daily life consists of having a regular place perhaps and a time where you contact God in the Word and in prayer, that times of crisis won't ruffle you, just like Daniel. But that if you don't spend much consistent time with God, when certain things like this happen, you'll just be ruffled. You have no stable foundation. Daniel knew it had been signed. He lived a consistent life. What a legacy. Review them in your mind. He was faithful consistently, teenage, middle age, old age. He was faithful professionally on the job, hard worker, good attitude. He was faithful under scrutiny. He was faithful spiritually. That was his base. A great legacy, a great example. And people who are like that make incredible impacts on people who don't know the Lord. Let me tell you a a history story, history lesson. Alexander the Great, as you know, conquered the world by the time he was 29 years old. He sat down and wept in Babylon, incidentally, weeping that he had no more worlds to conquer. It is said that Alexander the Great took a small company of soldiers, not his entire army, a few of them, and came up to the wall of a huge fortified city and demanded to speak to the king of that city. The king came out on the wall. He said, I demand that you and your city surrender to me, Alexander the Great. The king laughed. Why should I surrender to you? What can you do to us? You have a small company of men, and we have a huge city. Alexander the Great said, Allow me to offer you a demonstration. He had all of his men line up, the story says, in a single file. And at his command, they started marching toward a sheer cliff. And one by one, at the king's command, without hesitation, walked off the edge of that cliff to their death. Ten of them died. After ten walked off the cliff, Alexander Alexander the Great said, Stop, gathered his soldiers next to him. The story says that immediately the townspeople and the king surrendered, knowing that if ten men were willing to commit suicide at the command of this charismatic young leader, that no matter how much resistance they put up, eventually Alexander the Great and his men would have the victory. With that kind of loyalty, they've got to win, and they surrendered. Remember the question, who can find a faithful man? It's a good question to ask this morning. Who will be faithful to their husband and their wife till death do us part? Who will be faithful to the business and the boss that they work for? 
Who will be faithful to their God? I'll tell you what, what an incredible impact we'll make in our area if people see that we're faithful to our leader's commandment. It'll make a great impact. I want to close on this note. Though many times we want to be faithful, we find ourselves faithless. We hang our heads in shame, O oh Lord. I'm faithless, and God would say, but I'm still faithful. Faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sins and cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. Oh, but Lord, I've asked you for forgiveness probably 30 times before. Make it 31. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And perhaps you've never even committed yourself to this God. You've never made a commitment of allegiance to him. You do that this morning and you'll find that he's faithful to give you a brand new start. So, Father, we conclude the service by rejoicing in the fact that we have a great role model for faithfulness, and that is Jesus Christ, a faithful servant in all of his house. And this morning, Lord, though we do not pretend to attain to that stature, by your grace and power, we can be faithful consistently, professionally, under scrutiny, and spiritually. Enable us, Father, to do so, that the world may be impacted, that they might know that God lives, that we're one of your kids. Father, I pray for those this morning who've never experienced your faithfulness in seeing their sins washed away, that they would give their lives and hearts to Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.